first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. I'm Don Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room. Carly, we have some grim news that's just out. Earlier this week, Glad reacted to the news that there has been an increase in the number of trans people looking for help, thinking about ending their lives. Young trans people in Arkansas who are reacting to the news that gender-affirming care is now against the law. That's one thing. We're getting a lot more calls from Arkansas, Tennessee, and Mississippi on Trans Lifeline. So You've seen this in your work, too. I've, I've seen this since this pandemic started. I've seen this happen since, since the Trump memo in t- 2018. I saw this when the Alliance Defending Freedom put out their bogus lawsuit against Connecticut. This is nothing new, but it still hurts just the same. It's another punch in the mouth to transgender Americans. And well, are you sure bad. it's nothing new? I mean, it seems like they're seeing an increase ever since this law was announced. I mean, it's not in effect yet. It must be in July, but it seems like there is something new here. No, no, I don't mean it's nothing new in terms of the fact this is horrible and this is new and it's now, but every time People attack this community. People attack this community. It has a deleterious effect on us. And I want to ask these people: Where is your Where is your decency? Where's your humanity? And I know that a number of these legislators in these states are parents. What if it was your child being attacked in this manner? And I'd like to ask that again and again and again. In fact, a certain little girl in Texas did ask that. You know what? You know, scripture tells us out of the mouths of babes. And no, not too long ago, a babe in Texas told us it's time for I'm tired of having to come here and explain to you the consequences of bad decisions. This is a consequence of bad decisions, Don. Absolutely. And we're hearing for the first time this week the out trans son of a prominent trans advocate, Bryn Tannehill's son, Eric came out in an op-ed, a special to the Los Angeles Blade, my old haunting grounds, writing about, quote, it's like watching a murder in slow motion. That's what he describes Republicans targeting trans youth. He's over 18, he's 18 years old. He's a trans man. He's been out for four years and he's a trans athlete. And he's a kid who's been through hell. I read that article, and let me tell you something. Eric Tannehill can always have a sandwich over my, over my house anytime, just like Bryn could. I really, but again, this shows, this shows once again just the consequences of the actions here. Do, you, do these people realize what they're doing by targeting, the, targeting young people? 
I mean, it's, and it's just as bad for, for trans adults. I see this across the board working for Trans Lifeline. When the trans community gets attacked, it hits everybody, but it hits the kids the hardest. And they're the most vulnerable and they're the most defenseless. And again, it goes back to asking that question, if this, if this was your child. I want to talk to all these legislators, Republican and Democrat. If these were your child, this was your child, how would you respond? Well, apparently they try to get them converted therapy, uh, which of course should be illegal everywhere because conversion therapy is bullshit. It doesn't work. Conversion to what? Well, back to being pretending to be a cisgender person. We tried conversion therapy in so many other cases and it doesn't work. What makes people think it's going to work here? Come I tried on. it on myself. I, I myself tried trans hypnotherapy to try and convince myself I wasn't who I am. It didn't work. There was also a report by the Williams Institute at UCLA that said they're expecting the impact of all these bans, all these laws, 10 states right now with governor's desks full of trans legislation, anti-trans legislation, affecting 45,000 trans youth. 45,000. You know, that's bigger than Poughkeepsie, New York or North Miami Beach. Or if you filled up the stadium at RFK, which doesn't really, you know, have people in it anymore, but imagine you could. It's a lot of people. one 877 Write that child, down. If you're a child listening, if you're a transgender, if you're transgender youth listening to us, if you're a parent of a transgender child listening to us, take that number down. It's the number for Trans Lifeline. We're here for you. We're here to support you. And we're here to let you know that you are loved, you are valid, and this community will not take this lying down. And that's also my message to many of these legislators, many of them Republican. You know, there's a song among my people, We Shall Overcome. Mm. But I'm also going to tell you all something. We shall come over. <laughs> we will come over to your state houses. We shall come over to your offices. We will stay in your face. And I encourage all of us, our trans people, our allies especially, cis allies, no matter where you're at, cis allies, cis queer allies, cis straight allies, now is the time to make your voice heard. I agree. Now is the time. If there, if we ever needed your voice, we need it. And uh, and also, I'm going to send this one to President Biden. President Biden, I wrote an op-ed. I wrote a letter to you on the day of your inauguration. I need that bully pulpit, sir. Mm -hmm. Now is the time, sir. And I've seen you use that bully pulpit. You've used that bully pulpit on infrastructure, on COVID relief, on vaccination. And it's a good thing. And Mr. President, I support you. But, but I, as a transgender American, I need your bully pulpit. I need you and Vice President Harris. I need you now to speak out. Now is the time. I need people. I need now is the time for all good allies and all good people really to come to the aid of their country. Because Sounds like a quote I am an American. <laughs> yes, you are. You deserve protection just like everyone else. You are no less worthy. And also, let me add, for those people who are um, uh, interested in other options, Trevor Project has a lifeline for those 24 and younger, 
7386-866-488-7386. And everybody, no matter how you identify, no matter what your age, can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. These are all 24 hours a day. 800-273-8255. We'll put links and numbers on our social media. Carly, I had the privilege of talking to someone who's a pediatrician who knows a lot about being transgender and how draconian, she called it, the laws are. Dr. Rachel Levine was sworn in the first transgender person nominated by a president and confirmed by a U.S. Senate. Dr. Rachel Levine, the Assistant Secretary for Health at Health and Human Services. And I had a very interesting interview with her. And I'd like to know, would you like to hear that? I would love to hear it. And and I've really that one of the things that excited me about this, about the change we've seen in the guard is having Rachel Levine in the in that office, in that seat. That was something that was important. That was important for every American, not just transgender Americans, but every American. If nothing else, to see us being a part of the being a part of the process showing capability and being a part of the process and also showing our humanity. And one thing that Rachel Levine has shown, especially in from her work with the opioid crisis to her work on the COVID crisis is her humanity. And it's a humanity that a lot of people have tried to strip from her. So and true. she is, and she has handled it with serene dignity. And we talk about that a little bit. Also, uh, we talk about her experience as a pediatrician, her experience as a trans woman, her experience in Pennsylvania, um, meeting her five years ago at the Glad Media Awards with my BFF, a friend of the podcast, Melody Maya Monet. And yeah, we sat next to each other, thanks to Jenny Boylan. And I'll tell you, the thing that's interesting to me is that all this time, we still don't really know a lot about Dr. Rachel Levine. And I think part of that, she didn't say so, but I think part of that is because when she was back in Pennsylvania five years ago, shortly after we met, the Washington Post ran an article that was very, very personal, very in-depth. They interviewed her ex-wife. They interviewed her mom. They looked at pictures of her prior to transition and showed that in the article. They dead-named her. And I reached out to this cisgender straight reporter at the Washington Post and asked them questions, which I didn't get answers to. And I wonder if that's part of Dr. Rachel Levine's hesitation in giving us you know, in-depth answers to her personal life. I respect that she wants to keep that stuff private because I think she got burned. Well, I'm looking at the article right now. You've seen it, yeah. I can understand, I can understand why. Yeah. I mean, we and, don't- And you've tangled with the media, right? I mean, we're both in the media, but we both had to tangle with the media. And I've said this to trans people for five, no, for eight years, the media is not your friend. And that's a real sad thing as a member of the fourth estate. Yeah. I think I, I believe that our media should do better. And, but of course, if we look at the experience of every marginalized and minority community in this country, oh, yeah, it's not some just of the us. last people to get it is the media. Come on. The, the Chicago Tribune was still using the word colored for black people as recently as 1980. Let that sink in. Yeah, really, really. Let that sink in. I mean, this is, 
Because what are newsrooms full of? Newsrooms are full of what? Cisgender, white, middle-aged, or older white men. And and recently, I was talking to someone about that. Uh, I was talking to someone that really quite recently, and they were asking me, what will it take to get trans people better coverage? And I said, you need trans people in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, the room where it happens. You need trans people in that room. You need you need a trans person as a copy editor or as a reporter or as an editor saying, are you sure we shouldn't know this is not the way this story should go. Except for one thing, though, having been the first transgender editor at The Advocate when I was the news editor, every trans story fell to me. I felt like I had this burden of being the trans writer. And that's not fair either, just like it wouldn't be fair to have a black person always be the person interviewing black people. We all agree. As journalists, we have to learn to stretch those skills to be able to be, you know, a Renaissance woman or a Renaissance man and know a little bit about a lot of things. But your point is exactly right. If you hire LGBT, if you hire trans, if you hire marginalized people, when you cover that community, your coverage will be better. But not only that, that person can also be the sounding board because in, in the shop I worked at back in Omaha, in my, t- in my TV station, if people were being sent out to cover the community, I'd tell them, no, you can, no, if you need to come to me with a viewpoint, you come to me with it. And people are like, well, I don't want to come to you all the time. I said, I'd much rather you come to me, get at least an idea of what to do or get a reading list or something before you go out there and embarrass yourself. And I think that's got to be, that's part of my own personal ethos as a journalist is that, no, I'm willing to open up because when a person in a newsroom dead names someone, when they misgender someone, when they repeat turf talking points in the story, that oh. doesn't just reflect on them. That yes. reflects on our news organization. Exactly. Unlike, unlike Fox News, I care about my professional reputation. Well, that's I care we about being a member of the of the. This is not just a job. This is a craft, and it's a craft I take a lot of pride in. So, so I and Dawn, I know what you're saying. We need cis we need cis journalists getting up to speed, but yeah. we also need trans journalists in the room in the room as reporters as copy editors. That's Absolutely. why that's why I'm gonna we need to mention a name here. That's oh, why yeah. Christina Carl is so important, being yes. the sports editor of the San Francisco Examiner. And that's why she is her. So, yeah, yeah. That's why she is so important, because you need that leadership in a newsroom. Yeah, friend of the podcast, Christina is fantastic. And let's face it, she's a pioneer and a trailblazer who right now, let's just make sure everyone understands. She is the most powerful transgender editor in the country. There isn't another editor of a major metropolitan newspaper in the country who's trans other than Christina. I mean, I'm managing editor of Outsports, but it's not the San Francisco Chronicle. And we work very hard at Outsports to make sure that even though we're the only two trans people, that everybody on board knows us, has us, can reach into our uh, brains and say, can I get this right? Am I getting this right? Because that's what we do, right? And and essentially, I got to give credit to our our CIS staff. They do. Yeah. They do. And there are times when we got to pull our hair out and there are times we have to educate. (laughs) And there, there are times you have to, but you know what? There are times when I've had to be schooled by Sid Ziegler, by Jim Brzezinski, by Alex Reimer, by Shelby too. You know, it's a learning education. It's we all have things to learn. Absolutely. For all of us. But the thing is though, it starts at the top. 
and when you have a leader, when you have leadership like a Don Ennis, like a Christina Aww. Carl, that makes a that makes a difference. It's the same way that it makes a difference to see to see to see black folks who look like me run it at major dailies, running network news departments. Yes, we need Tim Godwin is now running ABC News. Big big deal. Yes, first black head of a TV news division in history. And we and it's needed, especially with what's happening in our country right now. We need that perspective has to be there. But I look at but I look at a Christina Carl. I said, no, that's that is something we need. Somebody up front, not only who can who, in a sense, can drive the coverage and set the tone. That's right. Well, speaking of tones, I hear the music. That means we have to take a quick break on the other side of this commercial. Dr. Rachel Levine on tape talking to Don Ennis and Carly and I are going to make a little comments here and there as we listen to my interview which I am very excited to share with all of you. So stay with us. You're in the Transporter Room. And welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb along with Dawn Ennis. And Dawn, you got us someone special this week yeah. for the podcast. You had a special sit down this week. I'm excited to hear this because... That's how much I think about this person we're talking about, Dr. Rachel Levine. Yes, and what a resume. She was a pediatrician. She led Mount Sinai's uh, healthcare unit. She was a professor. She was a physician general in Pennsylvania and then health secretary in Pennsylvania and confirmed by Republicans in Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, also, harangued and attacked by Republicans in Pennsylvania. And then President Joe Biden named her as the first transgender American ever nominated to a Senate confirmed position. And the US Senate in a bipartisan vote, it was close, confirmed her as the Assistant Secretary for Health at Health and Human Services. Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski came across party lines and they confirmed her as this assistant health secretary. And I'm fortunate to be the first trans journalist to have interviewed her, the second journalist since her swearing in. And let's hear that interview. Hi, hi Don, how are you? Very good, Rachel. I've got a little bit of brain fog. I had my second dose of Moderna yesterday, um, about uh, 26 hours out and okay. about, about 15 hours in. Middle of the night, I felt so great yesterday. Middle of the night, my arm started going, ah, and I started getting the shakes, and I started taking ibuprofen, and this morning, some acetaminophen, and I feel a little bit better now, but I've, I've had a very long nap today. <laughs> okay, well, th- well, that's good, but I'm so glad that you got the vaccine so that you will be protected. That's what matters most, and I am so happy to be old. so that i could qualify for the vaccine but you know my uh, two oldest children are in college and they're getting the vaccine this saturday and the following weekend they're getting pfizer and i don't care as long as they're getting vaccinated that's exactly right well that's great and i'm glad that you have it and that they'll be they'll be starting their series there's this big thing in the news right now with the cdc basically recommending a pause nationwide which states have all heeded 
How is that affecting your job? What, are your, what is your role as Assistant Health Secretary in this look at Johnson & Johnson? And what do you think of this pause? Sure. Well, um, as you know, uh, the CDC, working with the FDA, um, uh, recommended a pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because of the six cases of blood clots that were observed um, in women 18 to 48. Um, and these occurred about uh, essentially one to two weeks after the shot, uh, specifically six to 13, six to 13 days. Um, you know, I, the, I, I think that it was uh, a, a very prudent step, um, and uh, I think that uh, the administration wants safety, among, uh, you know, beyond all else. Um, and so th- this will um, this will give notice to the healthcare community because it's really important to know what to look for for, for the public as well as doctors and other healthcare personnel. Uh, but also the management is different, so that if they're seeing somebody with um, with certain clinical findings and certain laboratory findings, the management is different if it's related to this potential side effect of the vaccine uh, than if you were just seeing someone with a blood clot. So that's why it was so important. Um, yesterday, a, um, a HAN went out, uh, HAN, the Health Alert Network. Um, and then also the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice uh, from the CDC is meeting as we speak. They're meeting today uh, to go over all the evidence and the context of the evidence to see what what any or further actions would, would be needed. Now, I mean, this would be a very rare side effect but I think this pause shows that, you know, that safety is most important and that the checks and balances that the administration has with the CDC and the FDA um, is working, you know, to keep everybody safe. I mean, my role is to participate in this process, um, you know, as, as, as the Assistant Secretary of Health and, uh, you know, beyond discussions, et cetera. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that we will see what the, what the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice does today and then what further, uh, you know, what further cases might show up and what further evidence develops. Only one more question about J&J, and it's affecting um, women specifically. And one of the things I've heard Dr. Fauci and others talk about is the investigation may center on hormones. Now, you and I, as transgender women, both know a lot about hormones, about the risk for DVTs about blood clots. What personal experience can you lend in terms of this question? Because I think one of the issues that's always come up is that medical science too often assumes that women are identical to men and doesn't really look at how women are different. Right. So this might have a, um, you know, somewhat of a, a hormonal influence, but we don't know that yet. You know, I mean, there were six cases. And so uh, we, we don't have all the facts. Now, the CDC and the FDA are looking at the, the, uh, all the evidence about those patients really, really carefully with a fine-tooth comb, um, and then we'll see if any other um, cases um, get reported, and then they'll be analyzed. So, I mean, that was, uh, you know, that's a, hy- that's a hypothesis. That's, right. that, you know, that's something that might be in, uh, important, but we don't really know at this time. But you're right, men, men, <laughs> men and women are different. So, um, and, and, and hormonal influences, et cetera, you know, um, uh, we know that that's true in medical care in general. We know that that's true in terms of how uh, men and women react to, uh, to, to medications. Um, and hormones can play a role, but we don't know that about the vaccine yet. You know, one of the things that occurred to me as I was listening to her talk, after four years of Trump transphobia, military ban and everything, 
here I am talking to a member of the current presidential administration who is talking about women and not differentiating between trans women and cis women. She basically is living proof that trans women are women and she's acknowledging that. And it was just so refreshing. Also what's refreshing is getting the straight story from an official from the administration. No double talk, no pointing fingers, just saying, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's what we're doing about it, next question. It seems like it's, a, it's the Gen Saki, it's the Gen Saki doctrine and it's rubbing off on people. Let's just call it, let's just talk straight and let's level with the American people. Let's treat them like they're grown folks. Here is my next question, which is, what does she do? What is this job? I'd like to know what sure. it is you do. Sure. Um, uh, so uh, it, it's the Assistant Secretary for Health um, at the Department of Health and Human Services. And so, you know, my, one of my main jobs is to serve as a, a senior advisor to the secretary uh, about all things health-related and, and medically related. Um, there are um, some specific offices under my authority, um, the, um, the, for example, the Office of Minority Health, uh, the Office of um, uh, Infectious Diseases, um, the Office of Women's Health, op Office of Population Affairs, and, and things like that. Uh, and then there are a number of different, um, many different committees which are under our office. For example, uh, the COVID-19 Health Equity Committee um, Task Force is organized through, uh, through our office, and, and I have, um, I, I'm taking this, the uh, often will be sitting in for the secretary on, on those meetings. So, um, you know, I help coordinate um, medical and healthcare policy for the administration. Um, I collaborate a lot with many different people uh, and many different offices. I collaborate within Health and Human Services with SAMHSA, uh, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Station. Uh, I collaborate with, um, with the CDC, with the FDA, with the NIH, um, and we all work together as a team. And the Surgeon General reports to you, is that right? Uh, the, the Office of the Surgeon General um, is within the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health. And, um, and so, you know, I look at more as a collaboration, okay. but I, you know, I, I speak with, uh, with the Surgeon General, um, Dr. Murphy, every week, and we collaborate. Well, Dr. Murphy and you shared a confirmation hearing that, shall we say, was um, interesting. Um, you were just, you had such aplomb and polite dismissal when Senator Rand Paul with his outrageous questions about genital mutilation and so much more. You just handled him so politely and so well, so effectively. You also promised you would meet with him. Do you think you will meet with Senator Rand Paul? Well, um, if the senator reaches out and asks to meet with me, then I would be very pleased to meet with the senator and his staff. And what about Senator Collins? You know, she asked some tough questions too, but she and Senator Mikowski both broke ranks against the Republican firewall to confirm you. It was really sad that you didn't get a larger majority, but I was wondering what your thoughts were in terms of Senator Collins, Senator Murkowski, uh, going forward with your confirmation. Well, I was, I was honored to be nominated. 
uh, and then honored to be confirmed, as you pointed out, on a bipartisan basis um, uh, as the Assistant Secretary for Health. Uh, and I'm, you know, uh, very grateful to uh, Senator Murkowski and Senator Collins for their support. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'm going to work with everybody. Um, I, you know, collaboration is, is really one of, my, one of the hallmarks of my leadership style. And I am looking to, to collaborate, and I'm pleased to collaborate with, uh, with, the, with those that didn't vote for me. You know, we're all, we're all here to serve the American people. You really think that Rand Paul will take a meeting with Dr. Rachel Levine? Of course not, but I, but but you know something. Rand Paul spoke at Howard University, so you know mir miracles happen. But that's one thing. That was the one thing that truly made me a fan of Rachel Levine is how Rachel has taken a lot of mess, but has never lost her resonance, never lost temper, taste, or tone. Mm -hmm. She stayed above the fray, and I say this often, she has acted with serene dignity because she realized it's not about getting in the gutter, getting in the gutter with Republicans. It's about getting the job done for the American people. And I like the fact that she, that she says that I'm here to serve the American people. And that is important. People need to hear that because that we've had four years of people serving themselves. And now we got people who are putting the people first. But I will say there was a certain article that you wrote last year, Don, that I think a lot of people need to keep in mind that no, coming after Rachel Levine the way that some have, it's childish and it's, it's wrong. violence. It's violence. Yes, it's vi to me, misgendering is hate speech. Mm -hmm. Calling a transgender woman a man is hate speech. And it's something that's happened to all of us in media it's happened to me it's happened to you it's happened to dr levine and i'm here to tell the people who engage in that and may continue to engage in that grow up seriously here's the next question being trans is the fifth most interesting thing about me i was wondering what you would say to that and do you uh enjoy do you regret do you have any feelings about being called a trans trailblazer I have no regrets whatsoever. I mean, I am grateful for all, the, all different aspects of my personal, of course, and professional and uh, professional career. Because I think that everything um, uh, everything builds upon um, uh, on your previous experiences. And so, um, you know, I, I, I used to say that I brought everything that I've ever learned ever uh, uh, to my job as the at the Pennsylvania Department of Health, and I think that that's exactly true now as Assistant Secretary for Health at HHS, is that everything I've learned uh, in my clinical background, my educational background, you know, as a professor, um, in terms of my administrative experience, um, in terms of my research experience, at, you know, at the Penn State College of Medicine, I, and then all the experiences I had as the Physician General and the Secretary of Health, um, I bring to this position now. So um, I am grateful um, uh, and uh, will do everything I possibly can to use all of that experience for the common good. And it's important to note that your, you know, original job um, back back in the day was pediatrician, and that's really important, especially when it comes to these terrible things that are happening. It's happened in Arkansas. It may be happening in Texas. And I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about trans issues, but you and I are both trans, and you've mentioned in your sure. letter, in your letter, your statement that you know you want people to recognize that trans people are people. What can you say as far as your intersectional experience as both a 
government official, as a pediatrician, as a trans woman, about these terrible things that are happening in terms of um, depriving um, trans-affirming or gender-affirming health care to, the Williams Institute says, 45,000 trans children. Yes, I, 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 and I read that in your pre-article um, uh, about, the, uh, about the, the bill that has been introduced in Texas and, of course, some of the previous bills, the bill in Arkansas and other states. Um, and so, again, I bring all of my experience to bear um, in, this, in this position. I think that, including my experience as an openly transgender woman, this, everything informs my, my experience. Um, I think that it's really challenging um, that uh, that state legislatures and and um, some states, you know, governors have signed some of these bills um, to uh, to both uh, limit participation of of trans girls in sports, and then also uh, even these more draconian laws uh, about limiting uh, medical care for for transgender youth. Um, I mean, we know uh, that transgender youth are, are vulnerable. Um, they have um, a high risk of having uh, being bullied, of having harassment um, in uh, in schools or in their community, and I think they need all of our support. And I think that these bills that that um, that limit their participation in sports, and especially that seek to limit um, the opportunities for for standard of care, medical care, are extremely difficult, and those are draconian. You have made um, efforts to avoid partisanship, especially in your confirmation hearings, and I'm sure in your current job, because healthcare has been so politicized over the last year, given you know mask mandates and lockdowns. How and why um, are you uh, able to avoid that? And I read in your statement that you were mostly concerned about health. Uh, it's actually an interview with NPR about health equity as opposed to politics. That, that's exactly correct. So. I don't view, so let's talk about two separate things. I don't view um, the COVID-19 response in Pennsylvania or the national response um, as a political issue. I think it is unfortunate that it has been politicized. I view this as a public health issue. So when we, you know, there are three ways to deal with the pandemic. The first is, and there means three tools in our public health toolbox. The first is containment, which involves testing and contact tracing, et cetera. The second is mitigation. Um, at its heart, uh, that is wearing masks and washing hands and social distancing, but it can involve the more challenging measures. Um, and then the, and the last is medical and the primarily vaccines. And so, you know, we have needed all the tools in our public health toolbox to deal with COVID-19. That's public health. It's not, it's not politics. And when we talk about um, the, the, what we just talked about in, uh, of these um, measures to try to, uh, to, to, uh, to impact um, negatively transgender youth, I mean, to me, that is a health equity issue. Um, health equity is one of my priorities. Um, as the Assistant Secretary for Health, uh, it is very much under my, uh, you know, under my authority, um, uh, in, in, uh, in, in my tool, in my wheelhouse, so to speak. And so, um, uh, you know, I want to work towards health equity from from many different perspectives. We want to work for health equity in terms of access to care, in terms of standards of care. Um, in terms of access to vaccines would be an example. And, you know, thus we have the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force. Well, the, these issues we've been talking about for trans use are health equity issues. Um, medical care and public health should not be politicized. And could we not agree more?
I agree. Especially right now when we are seeing myriad public health crises, of which COVID is obviously at the top of the list. But to me, there's also other public health crises. Opioids is a public health crisis. Transphobia is a public health crisis. Uh, the continuing targeting of African-Americans by the law enforcement is a public health crisis. Gun violence is a public health crisis. We have a lot of those right now. And, it is and it's good to see caring people, caring, intelligent people making their voices known. That's what she is. She's probably the smartest assistant health secretary they've ever had in the U.S. government. Let's face it. Look at that resume of hers. Amazing. Well, well, that's one thing, unlike unlike in a lot number of cabinet positions where you put a lot of political where you put a lot of political weight behind a person to get them in that office. In this case, you picked a professional. Yeah, instead of a donor there to do a job. Um, I don't know if you remember, but we first met five years ago at the Glad Media Awards at the Waldorf Astoria, May of 2016. Jenny Boylan sat us together at a table and look at where we are five years later. What was your inspiration to do public work and to make your transition happen? Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I've had many transitions. Um, and, you know, I, I uh, was at Mount Sinai in New York City and left New York to come to, to Pennsylvania and the Penn State College of Medicine. Um, I have been firmly ensconced in academic medicine for many years. Uh, and then had the really unique opportunity to be the physician general and then the secretary of health uh, in, in Pennsylvania. But was there that a person who inspired you as far as being a public figure? Um, I don't know if there's someone that, that particularly in, inspired me. I mean, I, what I, my, the, the, really the basis of my career uh, in, me, in medicine has been to help people. Right. And, and so I want to, you know, in, in academic medicine, I would help people in my clinical care. You know, uh, uh, in most of my, uh, my career in adolescent medicine and treating teens with eating disorders, et cetera, uh, to help, you know, children, teens and uh, young adults uh, and their families uh, to do research about those issues, to help people, to teach students and residents how to do that and then to run programs. Um, and then I had this really unique opportunity to, become, to, to go into the administration for, for Governor Wolf, which was an honor. Um, and I thought that that would be an opportunity to do things from a public health perspective. I'm going to have to just rush you because I've got two minutes left. Um, right, but what, I just want to finish please, that point, John. Please do, Rachel. I wanted Rachel. to do it with a, with a broader brush. I wanted to do that with a broader brush from public health and public service. And now I have the opportunity to do that nationally um, with the honor of being in the Biden administration. So that, it, it wasn't a specific inspiration. I've had these opportunities and I've taken advantage of them. It, it was hard because I had this beat the clock mentality. They told me I have a 20 minute interview, a hard out. We started at exactly, you know, the start of the clock. Right. And her answers are long. And I, I, I was looking for like a name, just one person that inspired her. Just name somebody. And she didn't have one. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing, though. She's a person who inspires me. That's enough. And seeing her get into get in the office was an inspiration, not just to me, I'm sure, but also to every transgender American who 
even with this changing of the guard and the fresh air we're seeing in Washington, we're still dealing with so much. We have a nation right now where 33 states put these bills up. I call it no trans land. Yeah. And that should not stand in this country. But every time you see a Rachel Levine standing up, speaking, and doing the job, it's a beacon of hope. I tried to shine a little light on that beacon, asking her some more personal questions. Let's see how she responded. Do you have a partner? Do you even have time to date anyone? <laughs> um, so I don't usually talk about my, my, my personal life, so I'm going to deflect that question. Understood. Um, may I ask, I have three children who all call me dad. Do your two sons call you dad? Um, I have a son and a daughter. Sorry, Don and his daughter. Beg they your pardon. Call, they call me many things. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Um, and um, your relationship with both your children and your um, previous wife, uh, good stuff? Excellent. Excellent. That's great. Um, I'm going to ask you this last question before the minute we got. Um, we are both Jewish. I'm, all, I'm a convert. Um, I believe you're Jewish. I may be wrong. Do you, have, yes. do you draw any lessons from your faith in terms of your work? I, I draw, um, I, I, again, I draw from many different things. And so I draw from my faith. I draw from spirituality. Um, I draw things from my experiences, the people that I've met. I, again, I try to use everything I've ever learned and experienced personally and professionally uh, in my work to serve the American people. I always ask this question at the end of every interview. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to make sure our readers know? Anything about you or about um, being who you are and what you're doing and this honor you have for the Biden administration that you want to make sure I get in my article? Well, I, I think that, that you, you just hit upon it, that, that it is an, an honor uh, to have been nominated and then confirmed uh, as the Assistant Secretary for Health. And I, I, I'm extremely grateful to President Biden and the administration. Um, you know, I, I, I know that, um, uh, that uh, in addition to my public health role, that I have a role um, as, as a, I have a lot of visibility as an openly transgender woman, um, you know, and the first to be confirmed in, in this type of confirmed position. Uh, but I like to quote by President Harris, you know, I may be the first, but I won't be the last. And so we want, uh, you know, I, I, uh, with, the Biden, with the Biden administration to stand up for everyone um, and to bring the American people together. And what I want to do is, is to serve and protect the public health of everyone in the United States. There you are. There you are. And we invited her. I invited her to join us live sometime on the transporter room. We hope she accepts. Dr. Um, Levine, please come, please come on the show. Please. And I'm going to press her. I'm going to press her this time to say, what else do your kids call you? And let's talk about some other stuff that well, we didn't get to. <laughs> well, for me, for me, if nothing else, I just want to be able to, you know, ask her some questions, obviously, but also let her know what she, what she means to this community and to me in particular. Because it's just good seeing, it's good seeing someone who's trans like me in those positions. And like we talked about earlier in the news business, it's needed. It's needed. Just like Danica Rome in Virginia is needed. Just like a Sarah McBride in Delaware is needed. Just like a Stephanie Byers in Kansas is needed. Just like two trans men, gender members of the Minneapolis city council, especially right now is needed. Those voices are needed and they're there. 
I don't think we can oversell how important it is to have a transgender and gay person working in the highest levels of the US government for the most marginalized folks and for all Americans. That's just it. Dr. Rachel Levine says over and over again, she's not just there to represent trans folks. Pete Buttigieg is not just going to build roads for gays. They are there for all Americans. And thank goodness for that. That's what it's supposed to be about, isn't it? That's what it's supposed to be about. Carly, we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to mention, I don't know if you've uh, seen the latest in the sci-fi world, but there was an article that apparently there's a fight going on about trans identity inside Star Wars. Really? There's a place called Wikipedia, which is like the Star oh, Wars version of Wikipedia. Oh, in regard of in regards to Wikipedia changing changing certain names from people who have changed who have gone through their name yeah. change, who've transitioned, etc. Yeah. Yes. And here's the thing: as a person who's a regular reader of Wikipedia, yeah. Come on, people. This really? is really hard. I mean, this is this is why I don't get this is that same gamer. This is that same Gamergate 4chan 8chan mess all Gina over. Gina Carano, it. yeah. How anyway. hard can this be? I yeah. mean, seriously. You know what? You know, trans people are trans people are here. Get over it. Yeah, and people change their names. So what's the big freaking deal? Human rights should never be put to a vote. I love it. Uh, there's something I want to throw out. Not sci-fi, but it's very important. It's very important that we put this out since we were talking about journalism. Let's hear it. Um, a certain a certain friend of the show, a certain friend of the podcast recently did an excellent article that was in Sports Illustrated. Brittany De La Creta recently did an article did an article just seven days ago. And they're a friend of the podcast. And they're a friend of the podcast on that looked inside in Sports Illustrated, mind you. The sports the sports journalist resource of record in this country. And we're having the conversation about non-binary athletes. And it was a good, and it was an excellent article. Tim, I, I said on my Twitter that it's the most important piece of sports journalism so far in 2021. It, it, went, it went deep into Lanisha Clarendon from the New York Liberty, their process. Um, it went into a lot of the issues and it was done in a way where people could get it, but it didn't. But it also accounted for the nuance. Once again, Brittany did a did a great job, and I mean they've recently written two excellent excellent stories over this last three or four months. One on on transmasculine athletes, and now one on non-binary athletes that reached SI, which means it's going to reach an audience, which means people are going to be talking about it. And it was and it was worth it. Like I said, if you haven't read it, you should. It's that important. It's important that Sports Illustrated gave them the time to work on this piece. It's important that Sports Illustrated gave them the opportunity that all of these amazing athletes are telling their story. Rachel is telling their story for the first time in a huge platform. Brittany has, I think, hit a grand slam here. And even though these are the kind of stories that Outsports readers see all the time in Outsports, for Sports Illustrated to do it is a big effing deal. So my hat's off to them. Kudos to Brittany. Kudos to SI. Um, I want people to understand that these are the kind of stories that you'll always find in Outsports. And it's about time we see them in other places like Major Market, 
like mass media, like Sports Illustrated. Exactly. I mean, that's what's going to, but that is what's going to further things forward when the ma- when the masses, especially the masses of sports fans, start getting this and start talking about this and start understanding these issues. Because that is when the rubber really meets the road. When, when the people who are in the seats and buy the tickets and buy the gear understand what this means. That's when things start moving. We've seen that in every sports has always been a part of the human rights struggle. It'll always be a part of the human rights struggle. This is just another part of the struggle. And thank God for people like the editors at SI and Brittany who are doing the work that we've been doing and that we will continue to do at OutSports. Well, this has been a great show. I look forward to next week. Carly, steady as she goes. Live long and prosper, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank you.